Morning, Northwake. It is great to be here with all of you. Thank you for braving the rain and cold and gray to be here with us this morning. Uh, if you're joining us from home, we are very glad that you are getting to be in the community and worship right alongside of us this morning. So we're glad that you are here as well. So normally when I get to uh, stand in front of a crowd like this, uh, you heard Carson uh, introduced me as doctor. I have to say I'm Dr. Jerry Lassiter, and I'm the director of distance learning because that's my day job for a Southeastern Seminary. I also teach Old Testament and Hebrew there. But I'm very pleased that for the past 18 years, my wife and I have got to introduce ourselves as how we're Jerry and Mary Catherine. We're members at North Wake. We've got to be a part of this community and spend time with y'all for nearly 20 years now. Speaking of 20 years, it was 20 years ago today that I asked Mary Catherine Russell if she would change her last name and be Mary Catherine Lassiter. So I... I outpunted my coverage. Uh, she is a wonderful, wonderful wife. Um, so y'all can ask her the story. It's slightly more romantic than, hey, you want to change your last name? Uh, <laughs> probably not enough, right? So I do love the Psalms. I am uh, grateful for the opportunity to be with you all this morning and to share out of my love for the Psalms. There are two quotes that I love on the Psalms. One's in German, I'll spare you. The second one is that the words of man to God, like King David, who wrote so many of these psalms, became the word of God to mankind. So as these are inscripturated, they come to us, and they are the word of God to us, to teach our hearts and to instruct us. So pray with me this morning, and then we want to talk a little bit about some poetry. God, thank you for this opportunity. Thank you for a chance to come together as a body, to worship you in community. Lord, to take a look at your word and to see and to hear from your word as it instructs our hearts to tell the nations of your great salvation. Lord, be with us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so let's start out with a little bit of interactive, right? This is your chance to play along, whether you're in the congregation or you're at home. So let's take a look at a typical Valentine's Day poem, right? And y'all are going to finish this one. So I'll start you. Roses are red, violets are blue, sugar is sweet, and so are you. Absolutely. Now, how in the world did you know that that was the last line of this poem? You know because you've probably seen this poem since you were a little kid. And you were wondering, was this poem actually going to be a little bit snarky, right? Because they can be. We could have said, like, you know, you look like a monkey and you smell like one. Exactly, right? But this one's not. This one's a nice poem. So sugar is sweet and so are you. But you know because you've seen this poem before. You know how this poem operates. You know that the fourth line had to rhyme with the second. So with a little bit of setup, you knew what to say each time because you knew this type of poem. Let's take a look at another one. This is a second poem. When you know what type of poem this is or what kind of poem this is, shout it out. This is a haiku. That's right. Several people were yelling at their televisions right then. Haiku! This is a haiku. Haiku is a three-line poem. Five syllables in the first line, seven in the second five in the third. Now, some of you haven't seen one of these since the seventh grade, right? So you've got out your phone right now. Haiku. There's an A in front of the I, by the way. Make sure you spell it correctly, right? But having heard that, 
it brings it back to mind. And you think, oh, yeah, we've, we've looked at those things before. We've, we've talked about haikus before. They have a certain set of rules, certain themes. Again, we know this type of poetry, and we know what to expect. We know what to look for. Well, ancient poetry works the exact same way. Ancient poetry had categories. You heard Larry call them that last week. And this type of ancient poem that we're looking at today is a hymn. And hymns have certain rules, uh, certain things that hymns do. And when we know that, we know what to expect from the poem. So a couple of weeks ago, Jake Mason preached on Psalm 95, also a hymn. And if you remember when Jake preached, he said that hymns do two things. They command us to praise. They tell us to do it. And they give the reasons why we should praise. Normally they alternate back and forth. Command, justification, or why. Command, reasons we should praise. If you think all the way back to the beginning of this season when we started going through the Psalms and looking at the great loves of North Lake, Carson Cobb preached the first sermon. He told this great story about a minivan and how he spent hours of his life that he can't get back trying to buy a minivan. It was so frustrating. But then he ran into a friend. And as he talked to that friend, it gave him perspective. And he talked about hymns give you and I perspective. They, they lift us from the things that are here and they direct us upwards to God. And they give us a correct perspective on life. There's one other thing that hymns do. And you actually heard it from Daniel when he was leading worship just a little while ago. Hymns come to us from a time where Israel worshipped in the temple. Hymns are communal in their very nature. They're meant to be done in community together. When Daniel and I were talking about this, he was talking about a few years ago, he went through the hymnal, uh, that book that we don't have on the back of the chair in front of you, but many of you have been in a context where it is there. And he said as he went through it, he realized that easily two-thirds of the hymns are directed at each other. The very lyrics drive one another as we sing them together to have the right perspective and to worship God. So hymns in our Bible have a communal nature to them as well. So let's take a look at Psalm 96 and let's see what this hymn directs us to do and why. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. The first part of Psalm 96 is pretty easy. It was easy this morning, right? The worship team is up here, big smiles on their faces. Daniel is singing his guts out. Everybody is playing. It's easy. And then when we look around the congregation, you see my brother Gregory Curtis. He's one of my favorite people to watch on a Sunday morning because he worships like this. He sings. Now, on the other hand, I'm a member of the Frozen Chosen. So if you notice right over here, <laughs> this is how I worship, right? It, it takes a little work, right? It's hard to sing about Jesus like this, but I've, I can pull it off, right? We sing. 
But then we come to the second half of this. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations. His marvelous works among the peoples. And at that point, we all kind of look a little bit more like me while I'm worshiping. We're all like, yeah, that's a good idea. I should do that. I should tell our neighbors about Jesus. That's a, yeah, that's good, right? No, with the same passion and the same fervor, as easy as it is to be here on a Sunday morning and worship as the saints gathered together our Lord. That's what we should do when we tell the nations. That's how we should declare of his marvelous deeds. So if you want the punchline, and poor Ryan, I'm making Ryan go backwards a couple of slides at this point. But the punchline of Psalm 96 is simply this. Worship God by telling others about him. That's what Psalm 96 calls us to do. So if you're looking for the punchline, if you're a note taker and you can't wait until we get to right at 12 noon and we get to the point, this is it. That's the point. Go ahead and write it down. Worship God by telling others about him. With the same way that we stand and we sing together, let's tell others of God's marvelous deeds. Now, some of you are here this morning and you're like, come on, this is the Old Testament, right? But for real though, unfair stereotype coming, right? In the Old Testament, you were either born into the people of God and you kept all of the law or you're kind of out, right? That's it. That's all there is to it. It's not until we get to the Gospels where Jesus comes and we actually involve the nations. That's where, that's where we actually start to care about the nations, right? Some of you think, thinking, I've even seen some of those things in the Old Testament, in the prophets especially, where God addresses some of the other nations, right? So Psalm 96 might be calling us to sing, but it doesn't really mean among the nations, among all peoples, right? We got we to figure out how to read psalm in the context of psalms because that's not what it means. No, that's not it. Look with me at Genesis 12. See, in Genesis 12, God makes a covenant with this man, Abram, right? Now, you and I hear covenant, and we tend to think in legal terms, right? So party of the first party, party of the second party, dependents, witnesses, all those sorts of things, Sandra Richter is an Old Testament scholar, and she says in the ancient world, covenant is simply a way of making a non-family member a family member. And the covenant says, this is how we're going to operate because we're family. So God takes this guy named Abram and he makes him family. And this is what he says, I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. All the families of the earth will be blessed. Now some of you have been around for a few weeks. You've heard literally everyone talk about Gen 12. You've seen the video of Noah with the great hair talking about Gen 12. You've seen the video of Carson Cobb. You have seen everybody talking about Gen 12. And you're like, what, what is this thing? We take this year at North Wake Gen 12, we lift it from these verses. Just like God said, Abram, I'm going to make you a great nation. And through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. 
The church today has that same mission. So you see, God has always been about the nations. And we get to be a part of that. And so this year, money that was going towards paying off the building is being used to fund church planting. And it's going to be used to do things in our neighborhood around us. And Larry even mentioned last week that we're going to hold some of that back so that you and I, not just so we can put it in our pockets, but so that you and I can do things for our neighbors, the people who live around us, so that we can be a blessing. And why do we do that? We do that to create an opportunity where we can tell them of God's salvation, where we can declare his marvelous work to those people who are around us. That's why we do it. God has always been about the nations. So we don't have to figure out how to read Psalm 96 and what it really means. What it really means is tell them all of God's salvation, the marvelous work that he has done. In a hymn, Jake Mason outlined the parts for us a couple of weeks ago. There are commands to praise God. We've just seen those. Sing, tell, declare. And then there are reasons. Now normally we would expect these to alternate. Command, reason, command, reason. Go ahead and look down. I'll give you permission. You can skip ahead in the sermon. When you look down, you should see Starting with verse 7, ascribe to the Lord, ascribe. We're going to come back to that. There's commands again. And then when you look at the very end, let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. They're pretty much commands again. There's only one section of this psalm that lays out the reasons for us. And to say that it's central to Psalm 96, I'm not just trying to be punny. Right? Because it's actually in the center of the... It's not as funny when I have to explain it. (laughs) Puns, just no good when you have to do that. Right? It's literally the center of this psalm. It's what everything hinges on. The commands before it and the commands after it. All rest on the justification given in these next verses. Look with me. Starting at verse 4. For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. He's to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. The author of this psalm sets down a compare-contrast for you and I. And on the left hand, he says, the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, that's Yahweh. That's God's covenant name. That's his family name, Dad. He says, of this great God, he is great and greatly to be praised. He's to be feared above all. He's the one that made everything. Splendor and majesty are his. Strength and beauty are his. And everything else is a worthless idol. That's the contrast. Idols in the Old Testament, if we think about them being used in the fields, they were to ward away evil and somehow encourage a bountiful crop. 
You could make offerings to idols, sacrifices. Idols were a way that we would use something to manipulate the forces, to manipulate the universe, if you will, so that we get out of it what we want to get out of it. There are plenty of us in this room that we know about worthless idols because we've pursued things like a career or a house or a perfectly decorated house or race cars or possessions or whatever it is, thinking that those things, if we have them, will give us everything we want. But God's changed our hearts He's shown us what worthless idols are or is in the process of showing us what worthless idols are so that we can go out to the nations and we can say, great is this God and greatly to be praised. He has made everything. Splendor and majesty are his. And just like we stood and we sang this morning, All the nations can raise their voice in that as well and not be duped into worthless idols. The center of this psalm asks us some questions. Are there worthless idols that keep us from singing and telling and declaring And the second question, has the beauty and the majesty and the strength and the splendor of God taken hold of our hearts? Look with me at the next set of commands. Verses seven, eight, and nine. Ascribe to the Lord, O Families of the peoples. There are the nations again. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Probably the first thing that we have to deal with in this is a scribe. Right, that is just not a word used every day. Quick show of hands. How many of you kids, your parents used the word ascribe this morning, right? You're getting ready to go out the door. And they said, ascribe the coat to your sibling, right? So, I mean, what's going on here, right? Did the, did the men and the women who translated the Hebrew into the English Standard Version, this is the ESV, right? Could they just not come up with anything here? And they're like, I don't know. What did the old King James use, right? Just, just go with that word. If it was good enough back then, we'll use it today. Why not? right? Ascribe just isn't a word you and I run into a lot. Ascribe means give. Give to God the glory due his name, right? But it's a little more than that, right? Because we've all had to give before, right? We can all remember a time where somebody made us give, and we're like, fine, here, right? Heart not in it, compelled by someone else, forced Maybe I could even say that. That's not what this is talking about. That's not this give. When Moses retells the story in Deuteronomy of how Israel got too large and he couldn't 
manage all of them. He said to them, ascribe, same word, for yourselves, leaders from the tribes. Most of our English versions translate that as choose for yourself. There's a willingness in this giving. There's a volitional aspect of this where we freely choose, we want to. Now that doesn't make it easy. Notice what the psalm says. Tremble before him all the earth. It doesn't always make it easy, but there's still a willingness to give to the Lord glory and strength to come into his house. Let's look at the next verse, verse 10. Say among the nations, there they are again, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Again, there's probably a couple words in here we're not super comfortable with. The first one's judge. Let's just all be honest, in 21st century America, we struggle with this word, right? We say, don't be judgmental. We call somebody a little bit judgy, right? Then we all get on social media, right? Enough said. If you're not in the habit of checking social media, please don't start it. But if you are, then you well know what we do on social media is we jump on there and we judge everybody, for everything. You literally can't do anything right, right? You go on there and you brag about a kid. Well, you know, they're like that, right? Their kids are better than everybody else, right? So, right? You don't do that. You know, they never say any good things about their kids, right? You can't win. We're all judgy. The book of James in the New Testament says something about that, right? Like praising God with one side and cursing man made in the image of God and the other. But we really struggle with this. So what does it mean in Psalm 96 when it says the Lord, he will judge the peoples with equity? What is that? I mean, if you're over 28 and you happen to own a piece of property somewhere, you think you have a sense of what equity is, right? Like there's, there's some mysterious value in my house that it's worth more than the bank says that I owe. So I've got equity. That's equity. I know what equity is, right? So... What in the world does it mean right here? Equity means uprightness. Justly. Fairly. Our God, he judges with fairness. With justness. That's the way that our God judges everybody. My favorite book in the New Testament is the book of Hebrews. I love it. First Peter is probably my second favorite. Let's look, at what, uh, let's look at what the book of Hebrews says about this. This is Hebrews chapter 4. It says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. You see, sometimes we get this idea that 
God, God the creator, kind of made everything. He wound it up. And now he's just hanging back, watching it all wind down. Sometimes the news and social media don't help with that because we look around and we're like, this place is terrible, right? But that in and of itself is the wrong view of God. He is creator God who made everything. But he's also God, the son who came here and entered into creation and lived as a man, just as we are. So when it says in Psalm 96 that God will judge the peoples with fairness, with equity, justly, we have a God who entered into this and lived and died and was buried and rose again to fix our relationship with himself. That God is the one who gets to judge justly and rightly and fairly with uprightness and equity because he came here to fix it. And he did once and for all. Check out the last part of this verse. It's so amazing to me. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. If I'm being honest, even though I believe the first half of what we just read, this one's a bit tough. Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. Do you know what a mess up I am? I mean, do you know honestly how bad? Like even trying to get out the door to come to church and worship with the saints, I'm pretty sure I yelled at a kid this morning, right? Like, I can't come to God's throne with confidence and with grace as long as it's just me, but it's not. It's God himself who came down here to fix it. And it's in the Son I can come to the Father, not just creator God, but God the Father. Hebrews will go on to say that Jesus is pleased to call us brethren. I can love God the Father as a father, and he loves me as the Son. And I can come with confidence to the throne of grace. And I can receive mercy and grace in the time of need. And the nations need to hear that. They need to hear of the marvelous work that God has done. They need to be told and we need to declare it. And we need to declare it just like we sing on a Sunday morning together. It needs to be loud and it needs to be over and over again. And we need to encourage one another as a community to do it. Look with me at the end of Psalm 96. Now, if this perfectly followed the pattern, you and I expect more reasons here. So it's going to tell us again why we should do that. But it doesn't. Notice the language change. Let the heavens be glad. And let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes. So in Hebrew, this is not a Hebrew lesson, don't worry. I know some of you were thinking, oh no. In Hebrew, when we have a construction where we start with let, if it's God, it's a command. Think about Genesis 1. Let there be light, and there was light. There was no question light was going to come the moment the Lord spoke and said, let there be light. 
But if it's humans, like in the Psalms, it expresses a wish or a desire. And so when we come down to this, it's like a renewed call to worship. The author of the Psalm essentially pulls us back together and says, okay, one more time for the people in the back, right? Not y'all, right? I know y'all are paying attention. He's not necessarily addressing you. It's the guy in the back that's not getting it. One more time for him. What would it be like if the heavens were glad and the earth rejoiced? The sea roared and all that filled it. The field and everything in it exalted and all the trees of the forest. What would it be like? Revelation 4 gives us a glimpse of that. Where all tribes and tongues and nations are around the throne worshiping. And Psalm 96 reminds us all creation will worship right along beside us, just like before the fall, just like when everything was great. When everyone and everything worships the Creator as it was created to do. That's what the end of this calls us to. What would it be like? It can be. It will be. But we get a place in this. We get to tell of God's great salvation. We get to declare his marvelous work of coming here to fix us and our relationship with him. That's what we get to do. So there's a, there's a couple of slides of questions, and I'm going to go ahead and ask Ryan to throw these up behind me. You can kind of think all these and meditate. The one thing that I don't want to miss, though, is that hymns are communal. The very thing that Daniel said to set us up for this. This is done in community. So just like we sing and we sing our guts out, and someone like me who worships like this is a little more free, I can do this. When I see my brothers and sisters in here and y'all really worship, telling and declaring is the same way. So maybe in the community you need to hear some stories. If you're thinking this morning, like, eh, it sounds great, but I mean, I'm not sure if I can do this. You need to talk to George Robinson and Josh Reed, who can strike up a conversation in a line at Walmart and get to the gospel. They do it. I've been with them. I've seen them do it. Maybe you need to hear from Shelly Mason or Kelly Sissel. Shelly fixes lunches for her co-workers so that she can have an opportunity to spend time with them and talk about what the Lord's done in her life. Kelly and Jason always have people at their house so that they can spend time around them. Maybe you need to hear from my friend James Lind or Matt Williams who intentionally go out to apartment complexes to share the gospel. They just go cold call somebody because they want to tell the nations and declare God's marvelous works. So maybe for all of us, myself included, that our telling of God's great works looks a little bit like this. Maybe it can look like this because we do it together as a community. As the worship team starts, there may be some of you this morning that you're here. Maybe you came with a friend and you're thinking, I don't, I don't know this marvelous deed. Well, this morning, there are always elders and ministers down here. If that's you this morning and you think, I, I need to know this marvelous deed. I need to hear of this great salvation of God who came to fix my relationship with the Father. 
then by all means, don't leave this morning until you grab someone and talk to them about that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. God, thank you that we can see clearly in your word. You have always loved the nations. That you have always desired for all of creation, humans included, to worship you and to praise you and to adore you and to give you the honor. Do your name. Thank you, God, for coming and fixing us and putting us back in a right relationship. Thank you, God, for making us family. Thank you, Jesus, for coming and being a man and living and dying and being raised again. And now you sit at the right hand of the throne of the Father, always making intercession for us. Thank you, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen.